get to Ruth chapter 4. Joshua judges Ruth, if you're looking there in your Bible. Many of you know that in the fall of 1517, Martin Luther, who was growing frustrated with some of the abuses and the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, nailed the 95 Theses to the church door there in Wittenberg, Germany. You know, to Luther's astonishment, I think he really just wanted to start a conversation. But to his astonishment, that launched the Protestant Reformation. And throughout this, the course of this Reformation, he was interacting with a man named Erasmus. And there was a lot that these two would fight about. And you should read the way Luther fought, just because it's funny. But there were many points of disagreement between the two, not the least of which Erasmus was not convinced that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Erasmus continued to recognize the Pope as equal to Christ and equal to the Word of God. And in many ways, Erasmus rejected the power, the authority, and the sovereignty of God. And at one point, Luther just said, you know what, Erasmus, your thoughts of God, they're too human. Your thoughts of God are too human. And so this morning and every Sunday morning, we go to God's Word so that our thinking might be shaped so that it's true concerning the way God has revealed Himself, not that our thinking about God would reflect our own humanity, our own values. In fact, the book of Ruth has been challenging us to consider who God is and what He is like. We've seen really, really clearly the goodness and the faithfulness and the kindness of God. He's faithful to His people. You see, we're tempted, even as believers, I think we can be tempted to, to buy this lie that God is holding out on us. In fact, that's kind of the lie that started it all back in Genesis chapter 3. Has God truly said, are, are you sure He's not holding something back from you? We're even tempted to believe that God is being stingy with us, and that if I'm going to find my ultimate hope, if I'm going to find real joy, if I'm going to find real meaning, meaning and satisfaction in this world, it's going to be found outside of Him. I've got to buck His authority and go find this myself. That's been the problem of sin from the beginning. In fact, it wouldn't be odd if each of the major players in our story had moments where they wondered about the faithfulness of God. Boaz was seemingly, for a season, maybe the only righteous man in Israel during the dark days of the time of the judges. He's older, unmarried. You know, we know how Naomi wrestled. She came back and said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Ruth was a was a Moabite from an enemy nation, now taking care of her mother-in-law. She's lost her husband. She has no kids. She's been barren for the time she was married. Or maybe you've felt like that. Maybe you've wondered if God's faithful love has departed from you. Where has it been the last few years? Maybe there's some circumstances in your life that are difficult to discern and difficult to understand. You're wondering, where is God's kindness and grace and mercy? Where is His covenant faithfulness in the midst of my life? So as we finish Ruth this morning, I want us to come back and, and sort of, hopefully it's 
kind of an overview as we wrap up the book as well. But I want us to come back to this theme of God's covenant faithfulness because it permeates the whole book of Ruth. It's his, we, we've been calling it his hesed, his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love. And we see how it's demonstrated to each of the main characters in our story that's recorded here in Ruth. It's been faithful to Boaz, faithful to Naomi, faithful to Ruth, and faithful to us. So we'll start there with Boaz as sort of a, a review of what we talked through last week. In the first 12 verses, Wayne read it earlier, and since we preached that whole text last week, I won't reread it here. But two weeks ago, when I was last here and able to preach, we looked at these first 12 verses and we really stopped. You know, we, we joked that we've been saying, you know, we will. We need to stop and talk about this kinsman redeemer. We need to stop and talk about this. Well, chapter 4 was the place. The word redeemer showed up like eight times in 12 verses. So we stopped and we looked at these distinct but sort of these overlapping ideas of, uh, of the kinsman redeemer and this law of leveret marriage. If you weren't able to, to be here, you can find that online and listen to it rather than me re-preach the whole thing. What we saw, though, just by way of review, is that the kinsman redeemer had to be a brother, according to Deuteronomy. Apparently, Israel took that to mean, kind of expanded that to mean, well, the close relative, the closest relative should also do this role of a kinsman redeemer. We saw that a a kinsman redeemer had more to do than just marrying the, uh, the widow. The kinsman redeemer could buy his brother's freedom if his brother became so destitute that his only choice was to sell himself into slavery. His brother, if he had the means, could come and buy back his brother's freedom. And we did see that the, the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth, it, it overlaps with this leveret marriage where if, if, a, if a husband dies and they have no son to carry on the lineage to, to pass down the inheritance of the land, then the next closest relative, likely a brother, would then marry her and the first son, he would carry on the, the lineage of the deceased. He, so the kinsman redeemer would marry his bride. And we saw that this picture is the ministry of Christ who became like us. He, he is not ashamed to call us his brother. He took on human flesh so that he might represent us and that he might live perfectly before God and credit us with his righteousness that, and might take our sin upon himself so that he might free us, that he might purchase us or he might redeem us from our slavery to sin. We saw that this redemption price was Christ winning his bride. It was salvation for his people, the bride of Christ, the church. And so this morning, then, I'd like to consider God's faithfulness, not only in the the picture that Boaz represented as a kinsman redeemer, but God's faithfulness to Boaz himself. He blesses his, God blesses his faithful servants. I want us to notice the, the fruit of Boaz's life. If you remember throughout the book of Ruth, even in chapter 4, Boaz's heart belonged to the Lord before it belonged to Ruth. He submitted himself to, to the law before he, he tried to scheme. Remember we said maybe Naomi was scheming a little bit or plan was a little weird. Not so with Boaz. He submitted himself to the law, even though there was something that he desired, even though there was something that he wanted. I'm reminded of that uh, great female missionary in China, Lottie Moon, you know, she, she 
went to China to be a missionary, but she, she was asked at the end of her life, were you ever in love? She was a single till the day she died, and she said, you know, I was. But she was in love with a man named Crawford H. Toy, who, who taught at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and back then, they didn't even believe in the, the inerrancy of Scripture. And so Crawford H. Toy didn't believe the Bible was the Word of God, and, and he was undermining Scripture, and she said, I was in love. But, but this, this man, he didn't believe in the sufficiency and the authority and the, the inerrancy of the Word of God. And she said this, yes, I was in love, but God had first claim on my life. And since the two conflicted, there could be no question about the result. She loved this man, but since God had first claim on her life, and those two ideas were in confliction, she said, there, there, was, no, there was no debate in my mind. You see, this and Boaz, it's a beautiful illustration of the fruit of a righteous life. I think the scriptures teach that a righteous life brings its, its own reward. If you read the book of Proverbs, I think you'll find that there. While a life of sin, the way of the transgressor is hard, a life of sin brings its own misery and its own destruction. And so I'm not talking this morning about the reward of a righteous life being some kind of health, some kind of promise for health, or some kind of promise for prosperity, or some kind of promise for uh, fame, or popularity, or any of that. In fact, Jesus said the fruit of a righteous life may very well be persecution. I'm not getting at this false prosperity gospel, but what I'm driving at is something akin to Psalm 128.1, where the Word of God said, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. There's a, there's a blessed life that goes deeper than, than fame and riches and health. The problem with the prosperity gospel is it, just, it, it settles for those things. But God promises a blessed life for those who fear his name and walk in his ways. And throughout the book of Ruth, we find Boaz as one who has this proper fear of the Lord, and he's walking in obedience to God's will. We saw it in chapter 2 when the narrator called Boaz a worthy man. We saw it in how Boaz was obeying the laws of gleaning, which, which made provision for the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, to have something to eat. If, if a man was godly enough to keep the law and not harvest his whole field, but leave some for those who were in need. We saw it in the way that he entrusted himself to the Lord, even when he desperately wanted to marry Ruth. We see it in the way he's willing to provide for Naomi, and to redeem Ruth and the land and to continue the line of Elimelech according to God's law. So this, this blessed life that Psalm 128 speaks of, that, that Boaz exemplifies for us, this blessed life of consistently, not definitely not perfectly, but consistently fearing the Lord and walking in His ways is the blessed life. It is a beautiful life. The problem for us is that Satan and this world and our own flesh conspire against us to, con to convince us that God's word and God's good commands, that they're meant to constrain you. They're meant to put you in some sort of straitjacket, and they're meant to confine you from finding real joy and real happiness. But God's will that he gives, us to, he gives to us in his word, his commands, we might even say his law, you're going to have to forgive me. March Madness is coming up. They're like rules in a basketball game. Okay, they do, they, these rules, they, they don't actually impair the game. They don't 
put the players in a straitjacket. They don't hamstring the players from demonstrating their abilities. In fact, the rules actually create the environment where the game can flow with a consistency, and if you love the game like I do, even a beauty. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? You're putting a leather ball in a round hoop. It's beautiful. Sin, on the other hand, is, is ugly. It twists God's design. It mocks God's wisdom. It accuses Him of holding out. And it seeks to possess that which God has forbidden. And He's forbidden it for His own glory and for our good. We see that even Boaz was not a perfect man. He's a, he's a worthy man in the sense that Zechariah and Elizabeth were blameless before the Lord in uh, Luke chapter 1. He too was awaiting his own descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the only truly worthy one, who would perfectly obey the Father's will, who would endure every temptation to the bitter end, never giving in to one single sin, and he would lay down his life for our salvation. And there's, there's blessing, there's deep-rooted joy, there's deep-seated happiness even for those who, who would come to Christ through faith, who would fear God, and who would walk in His ways. God is faithful to those who are made worthy through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. God is faithful to Boaz, who is a wonderful example of a man after God's own heart, like his great-grandson David. God is faithful to his worthy servant Boaz, who ultimately points us forward to the worthy Son of God, Jesus Christ. But secondly, God is faithful to Ruth, the unlikely convert. And that's where we pick up where we left off. Look in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So Ruth had showed up at midnight and proposed to Boaz, why don't you take up your responsibility as a kinsman redeemer and marry me? And Boaz says, I very much want to do that, uh, but there's, there's something in the way. We should, we should go through, the, the, we should obey the law here. The, the man who refused to take up his responsibility disappears. Boaz marries Ruth. You know, this is an answer to Naomi's prayer back in chapter 1, verse 8, that the Lord would show his hesed, that he would be kind with Ruth, that he would show her covenant faithfulness. But there was a problem with, with Naomi's approach. She said, you know what, I, I want the Lord to, to be covenant faithful to you, but you shouldn't come with me back to the promised land. You, you should go back to Moab. You, you will never get married if you follow me back to Bethlehem. And remember we said Ruth, Ruth's answer is like, quit talking like that. I, I, don't, I don't care. Ruth counted the cost. She considered that it was actually unlikely to impossible that she would ever marry in Israel as a Moabite and that she would ever have children in the promised land. But she committed herself not only to Naomi, but more importantly to the Lord himself, bringing herself under the wing of the Almighty, the way it says in the book of Ruth. And in chapter 1, she made that great profession of her faith when she said, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me 
and more also if anything but death parts me from you. God has gone into the far country of Moab and called Ruth to himself. She has turned to the Lord. She she has entrusted herself to him. She has come under the refuge of his wing, given herself over to his mercy and grace. She's entrusting herself to his care. And she did this after, we know, much suffering in the land of Moab, where she suffered from barrenness and she ultimately lost her husband. And so Ruth's decision here to to come to the promised land, this turning, remember we saw in chapter 1, it's turn, 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 it's returning to the land. This would mean for Ruth that she'd be taking care of Naomi, her mother-in-law, and in ways that Ruth could never imagine. In her mind, she's choosing to to not be married, to not have children. She's committing herself to the Lord. She's committing herself to take care of her mother-in-law in in ways that she could have never seen at the time. All of her suffering, even potentially the hungry nights as they come back to Israel, and they they are reliant on people's mercy like Boaz to provide for them. All the back-breaking days of, of her going into the field and collecting food, unbeknownst to Ruth, God was working to bring about his plan that is greater than Ruth could ever imagine. Even upon her death, she didn't know all that God was up to. And so by the time you get to chapter 4, verse 13, God has reversed the fortunes of Ruth. She left with a deceased husband and no kids. Now she has a husband and a son. You know, again, God didn't owe this to Ruth. God had not promised this to Ruth. If you come, you can, you, I'll give you these sorts of blessings. This is simply a demonstration of the creative kindness and faithfulness of God. When Ruth counted the cost, she assumed she'd have no family, no son, no, no progeny. But she was gaining the Lord, and that was enough. She was gaining the Lord, and that's enough. And that's really how God calls us to come to himself. Let go of every dream. Let go of every ambition. Be, be, be willing to let loose of those things and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is worth it. You know, so many have deceived themselves into thinking that they can treat God like a little idol and I can manipulate him. And if I do this, then he'll give me this. And if I do this, he'll give me this. And I'll, I'll use the Lord to sort of fulfill my own selfish desires. I will obey the Lord, but I'm going to grow frustrated with the Lord if he doesn't deliver what, what I think he should deliver. You know, if that's our attitude, we have to repent and turn away from that and turn to the true God because if we think that and it's, it's in the recesses of our heart, we're really demonstrating that all along we weren't worshiping the Lord in the first place. We're worshiping an idol that we've created in our own heart. We're worshiping what we desire, what we want. God will not be used. God will not be mocked. God will not be manipulated. Who can give anything to the Lord that he should repay them? We can't manipulate him. So turn to him. Recognize him as worthy of all your devotion. Even if it means giving up your dreams and your ambitions and your goals. To gain Christ is to gain the greatest treasure. 
Whatever, whatever our hearts want, they're so small, they're so minuscule, they're, they're nothing compared to Christ. So we come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ on His terms, receiving Him as Lord, recognizing Him as Lord. So Naomi had said, you know, it's really going to be unlikely if you, if you come with me that you're ever going to get married. And you know, she wasn't actually wrong about that, that it would be unlikely. I think she was wrong to keep pushing her and pushing her. But the events in, in Ruth are, are quite unlikely. They're quite miraculous. You have a barren, widowed Moabite who's going to come into Israel and become part of the lineage of King David and the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. A family for Ruth is a long shot. It's probably the furthest thing from her mind. And you know, it's hard to, mi- it's hard to miss, as you read the Bible, God's delight in using unlikely women to, to continue this line of promise or even the messianic line. Unlikely mothers to bring forth children who become important parts of God's good plan to redeem sinners through Christ. So Ruth here joins Sarah and Rachel and Hannah and others whom God delighted to advance His plan to bring Christ into the world, to save sinners from the penalty and consequences of their sin through the most impossible and unlikely of circumstances so that we can't read the Bible and say, yeah, that makes sense how that worked out. We read the Bible and say, only God could have accomplished this. Only God could have written this story. Only God could have orchestrated history to this point and and come up with something as wise and beautiful and glorious as the gospel of Christ. God delights in using the least likely circumstances to magnify his own glory and the glory of Christ in this world. Interestingly enough, the last main character, and when I say character, I don't mean like fictional character. All right? this, is, this is history, we understand that. I, I probably don't have to say that. Um, anyways, the last person off the scene is Naomi. You know, if Ruth was the least likely to receive God's hesed, then perhaps Naomi is the least deserving. But we don't see God simply punishing, pushing away. In fact, he draws her back to himself through his acts of kindness, his hesed, his steadfast love. So three, we see God is faithful to Naomi, the sinner and the sufferer. Verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So the women of Bethlehem come around Naomi after the birth of her grandson, and they they bless the Lord. They praise the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with Naomi. But they they don't just praise God generally, They praise him specifically. They name the kindness of the Lord. He has not left her without a 
Redeemer. God had promised the impossible, or he had provided the impossible. Naomi now had a grandson, who even, even after Boaz, if she outlasts Boaz, which may not happen, she has a grandson that could provide for her and who could care for her and who can sustain the family line down through Israel's history. Now, the, the, the Redeemer here is not probably used in the technical sense that it's been used in other places because it seems like the Redeemer is actually referring to the grandson. He's not the kinsman Redeemer, but in a way he's going to provide for, he's going to care, he's going to protect, and he's a demonstration of God's kindness to Naomi. And they go and they, they pray for the child. They say His name there at the end of verse 14, again, is most likely a reference to the boy who has just been born. May his name be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. Remember, they prayed something similar for Boaz earlier. May his fame go beyond the walls of Bethlehem and reach into all Israel. And so for Naomi, the birth of this child signals new hope. There's a new meaning for the lady who once said, don't just call me bitterness because God has dealt bitterly with me. Her soul is refreshed in the demonstration of God's kindness in providing her a grandson. In an even more dramatic fashion than Ruth, we've seen this theme over and over in uh, the book of Ruth, in a more dramatic fashion than Ruth, God has reversed the fortunes of Naomi. Again, he does the unlikely. He, he reverses fortunes for people like Naomi. In many ways, Throughout the narrative, Naomi kind of steps and becomes center stage, even though the book's called the book of Ruth. Much of the narrative centers on Naomi. We saw her unfaithfulness that was on display and leaving the promised land. And again, I don't have time to go into all the reasons we argued she shouldn't have left the promised land. She should have stayed and trusted the Lord to provide for her in the land that God had given to his people. So we saw the unfaithfulness of the family on display and Chapter 1, we saw her suffering that was highlighted as she loses not only her husband, but then loses her two sons. She's left with her daughters-in-law, and widows were particularly vulnerable in this period in history. We saw her bitterness on display as she accused the Lord of dealing bitterly with her. I went away full, and I've come back empty. We saw even her foolishness on display as she schemed her way to try to get Ruth to Mary Boaz. But God has not deserted her. He has not given up on her even when he had every right to. It's not that he, oh, he stayed faithful to her because she has stayed faithful to, it, it's not that. It's, it's despite her son and in the midst of her suffering, God was not unaware and God was not uninvolved. Despite her son and in, midst, in the midst of her suffering, God was not unaware and he was not uninvolved. He was orchestrating her life. He was orchestrating the details of her life and the lives of those around her to bring about this demonstration of his grace and kindness in her life and a, a demonstration that would eventually lead to the gospel going to the nations. You know, this is a demonstration of the hasset of God, the steadfast love. Now, I think I've mentioned this before, but a little Jesus storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones defines hesed this way. It's God's never stopping, never giving up, 
uh, unbreaking, always and forever love. He's, he's committed himself to his people. And there's nothing, Paul would say, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So that's, that's the, the big overarching theme of the book of Ruth. is a steadfast love even to the undeserving. You know, perhaps Naomi experiences this steadfast love more clearly and more demonstrably than anybody else in the book. She had announced publicly for all to hear, don't call me that. God has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and I came back empty. Yet what happened in the book of Ruth? He continually filled her back up. She came back empty. And the Lord filled her up with Grain with barley, just repeatedly, blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Naomi was not only emptied of food, though, she, would, she was emptied of a, a line, a, a descent, a line of descent. But in verse 16, God again reverses her, her fortunes, fills her lap with a grandson. Once again, she is full, and it's because of the steadfast. Love of God, the faithfulness of God to the sinner and the sufferer. One commentator said it this way, The story that began for Naomi at a time when there was no king in Israel became a day where there was no bread in Bethlehem and then a dark night in which there were no children in her family. Now her covenant-keeping, all-sufficient God, Yahweh, has given her a grandson and within a few generations will give Israel its greatest king, he is a faithful God. He does all things well. He is a faithful God. He does all things well. So ladies have come and they've prayed for the descendant of Ruth and Boaz. Naomi's grandson would be renowned in all Israel. Oddly enough, it's Naomi's friends who name the child. You know, some of you ladies, imagine that. Your mother-in-law's friends get to name your... All right. <laughs> Anyways, they've prayed that Naomi's grandson would be renowned in all Israel. The same had been prayed for Boaz. Oh, that Boaz and Obed, that their name would be renowned in all Israel. It's almost as if they're prescient. It's, It's as if they know something, although I don't think they would have known, that even after Naomi is off the scene, even after Ruth is off the scene, that the good plan of God that began here, and it's going to move forward, and it's going to result in God's goodness and blessing coming to more than just Israel's going to be coming to all the world. That's really the the illusion, the, the hope that we get at the end of this book. Look in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now we might be tempted, like most of the times when we come across a genealogy, to sort of check out. I'll just kind of, my eyes will cross every name, and I can check off of my Bible app that I, I did that. We might be tempted to do that. You know, we might even wonder, is this the way to end one of the most magnificent narratives in all the scriptures with a list of, of names? What's, what's going on here? 
Well, well you, you know by now, we've talked about David enough, we've talked about Christ coming enough. We know that this, this genealogy is not insignificant. In fact, when you read the genealogy, now you know why someone took the time, why God took the time to inspire a narrator to record everything that happened in the book of Ruth. This genealogy tells us why Ruth matters and why it's in the scriptures and why it's more than just a great romantic novel. And all that pre, uh, precedes this genealogy, the narrator has been just, he's been dropping some hints every now and then, but, but by and large, he's been a passive observer. He's recording what happened. But now as the story draws to a conclusion, the, the narrator announces to the, the reader, those of us who would be reading this future, that the story was not complete when, when Ruth marries Boaz and they get a baby out of the deal. That, that that's not actually the end of the story. There's something even more dramatic. There's something even more miraculous that God has on the horizon. And it's in this genealogy that we get a glimpse into the deeper significance of, what, uh, of why Naomi and Ruth suffered what they suffered and were blessed in the way that they were blessed. That God was preserving the royal line even in the days of the judges of Israel. When everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, God was faithful to preserve this line through which one day King David would come. So there's a few observations just about the genealogy, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. First, it's interesting that the genealogy begins with Perez. Perez was already, it may begin there because Perez was already mentioned at the beginning of chapter 4. But also Perez is the descendant of Judah, and in Genesis chapter 49, as Jacob's dying, he's, he blesses Judah and alludes to the fact that his brothers will bow down to him, that through Judah will come this king. So that's probably one reason it starts with Perez. Secondly, it's interesting in this genealogy, and some of you have picked up on this and have already mentioned it to me, but as much attention that's been given in the book of Ruth to preserving the line of Elimelech and preserving the line of Malon. I mean, Ruth said that's why the kinsman redeemer should marry the widow to preserve the line. Well, as, as much attention has been given to that, the, the line goes through Boaz, not through Elimelech, not through Malon. Really, w w the genealogy then traces the bloodline, not the legal line of how the property would have been handled and, and how uh, the legal genealogy would have worked. This is the tracing then the bloodline of Boaz. So it recognizes Boaz, not Malon or Elimelech. So what, what happens? Then? The, the lady's prayer is answered. The crowd's prayer in chapter, the beginning of chapter 4 is answered. The names of Boaz and Obed are indeed proclaimed beyond the walls of Bethlehem. Their renown is greater than just Israel. And even that prayer is still being answered this morning as we take up this text and we read it and we preach it and we talk about Obed and Boaz. But third and most important, importantly, the genealogy concludes with King David. 
You know, we said when we started the book of Ruth that, that in our English Bibles, it's, it's in a really good position because it's between Judges and First and Second Samuel, and that's a good place for it because it does, uh, it serves as sort of a bridge between the dark days of Judges and the coming king of Israel. And so this book of Ruth was likely even written around that time of David to establish his line. So... Um, it is then a record of God's faithfulness in preserving this royal line so that God might bring about a, a king, a righteous king, to rule over his people and to lead them to fear God and to walk in his ways, to rule over the elect people of God. And King David and in some ways, was, was a righteous king. He was a man after God's own heart, but we all know that he, he failed and sinned in many ways. And so as those who are living on this side of the cross, and those of us who have the completed Bible, the completed canon of Scripture, we see then even a greater significance than the narrator of Ruth could have seen in this genealogy. You see the same list of names that shows up somewhere else in Scripture. It shows up in Matthew chapter 1 as Matthew records his gospel of the coming of Christ. Except Matthew doesn't end with David. David's in there, but it doesn't end with David. It ends in verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. That's the end of the genealogy. You know, we had this sense throughout the book of Ruth that the purpose of God in the, in the suffering and losses of Naomi must be greater and larger than, than can be brought about even to completion in her one lifetime. You know, God must be doing something bigger than just what he did with Naomi and filling up her lap. We had this idea that, that, that God was up to something greater and bigger than just that. You know, we might, we might learn from that. that we, you know, we talked earlier, is God being stingy? Is God holding out on me? We can't always understand our circumstances and what is God up to? We might learn that God's providential purposes include me, but they're not centered on me. And that's what's true of Naomi. God used her in a great way, but his purpose is centered on Christ and Christ coming into this world. So in your life and in your suffering, know that God's providential purposes include you, but life is not centered, this universe is not centered around you or me. What God is doing at any given moment is never confined to just one person in one period of time. He's always doing a million things in, a, in everyone's life and bringing about his intended purpose throughout every generation. So this narrative is much larger than Naomi, it's much larger than Ruth, it's much larger than Boaz. The story, as fantastic as a conclusion that it comes to, it's not the conclusion. God was not finished with his work. And we see that in Ruth. That in Ruth he's preparing the way, not only for King David, but for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords a king who would be born like Obed and like David in the town of Bethlehem. And when we meet this king in the opening pages of Scripture, it is in surprising fashion. We find a humble Savior who's born of a virgin. And, and as the Gospels develop, we find a king who is willing to lay down his life for his subjects. 
Most kings were worried that they're going to leverage their authority to abuse the people, to serve themselves. But this king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is willing to lay down his life for his people. And that's exactly what he did for King Jesus. The path to the crown goes through the cross. He suffered the brutality of a Roman cross, but this was just the demonstration of the, the, the real penalty, the wrath and fury of God being poured out upon his shoulders in his body. The blood of this king, Jesus Christ, was spilled so that you and I might be reconciled to God. And how wonderful uh, Sam and Levi testified to this gospel before their baptism. So we've seen the picture of it in baptism, and in a moment, we're going to remember the sacrificial work of Christ through communion. What a a blessing to be able to see both pictures that God has given us of the gospel in one morning. You know, as we prepare for communion, if you haven't turned from sin and thrown yourself at the mercy of God through the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, turn to him. We, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God through Christ. The Word of God says, if you hear His voice today, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts this morning. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have come to know God through Christ this morning, through baptism, through communion, we remember and we mourn our sin and we celebrate, and we praise God for his good plan in bringing salvation for sinners like you and I, providing a way of reconciliation for the undeserving. Let's pray together. Father, again, we are humbled before you. We ask again that you would shatter our hearts and that you would humble us And that you would continue to work in us and to conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we rejoice in in your gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.